Amen. He is risen. Amen. He is risen indeed. That is the title of today's sermon. He is risen. Very simple outline so that over dinner tonight, you will not forget what the sermon was about. Mommy, what was Pastor Emilio yelling about today? He is risen, sweetheart. Can't be any easier than that, but that is not referring to the fact that the resurrection is an elementary issue. It is actually the doctrine in Scripture, one of the doctrines, no doubt, that carries with it some of the greatest puff, profound weight. And that's really what I want to draw out today is just the, the weight and the reality and the depth of what the res- resurrection is and what it means. So let's pray and uh, we will begin. Let's pray one more time together. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you. Where do we begin to talk about and to elaborate and to preach about the resurrection? It is such a monumental event in the history of the world. Your world and your purposes, O oh God are revealed in the resurrection of your Son, Jesus, from the dead. And so, Lord, we pray that the resurrection would have its full impact on our life, that we would see it for its transformative power that it should have. We pray, Lord, that you would change us as we reflect and as we meditate on the goodness of God in the resurrection of your Son, Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would show us something of the person and the work of Christ today, that we would reflect on his accomplishments, and that we would see what it means for our everyday lives. And so, Lord, help us to see what Scripture has to say regarding this monumental event known as the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, today I don't have a principal text to go to with you. We are kind of going to be all over the place in terms of the Word of God. But that phrase, He is risen. And um, I had to go in our Bibles and look at all sorts of different translations in the Gospels because our Bible has, He has risen. And it's sort of messed with my outline, so I went to the King James that had, He is risen. And so, thank goodness for the King James, because that is the outline that I want to use. He is risen. It is much more than just a, a religious slogan for us. It is a lot more than just tradition. I want to point out the person of the resurrection today, He. And I want to point out the fact of the resurrection, Is. And I want to point out the reality of the resurrection. He is risen. And so that's where we have to begin. The person of the resurrection. You know, in the Bible, there are many resurrections. Did you know that? You will be resurrected one day if you're in Christ. We will all be, in a sense, resurrected, either to eternal life or to eternal judgment. The Bible has resurrections from the Old Testament to the New Testament that don't refer to the resurrection of Christ. If you remember, going all the way back to the Old Testament, Elijah performs a a miracle where he lays on 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 a child's body and he raises him from the dead. He gives him life again. Also, Elisha, his predecessor, his protege, does the same thing. He sort of mirrors Elijah's uh, miracle, and he also lays on a woman's dead son, and he too is brought back from the dead. Also, a dead man is thrown into Elisha's tomb, and just because he touched his bones, it says that, that, that he was given life again. In the New Testament, Jesus rose many people, gave life to many people that were dead, Jesus' resurrection in Matthew records this phenomenon where even at the resurrection of Christ, other resurrections took place. The saints, it says in Matthew 27, were raised from their graves and they walked around the streets of Jerusalem. You want to talk about an epiphanic miracle. That was a miracle that struck terror in the hearts of anybody who witnessed it. 
In Acts, you have Peter raising Tabitha. You have Paul raising Eutychus because he died because he fell asleep doing a sermon. So, uh, you know, be careful. Don't fall asleep during the sermon because I don't have the power to raise you from the dead. (laughs) But resurrections, in a sense, are, I don't want to say common, but there are many of them. And so what makes the resurrection of Jesus to differ? You know, we do a lot of witnessing at um, college campuses around here. Brother Wally goes to different campuses. Of course, we go to UNT. And you've talked to people, no doubt, who have scoffed at the resurrection, saying, oh, the resurrection uh, is just a concept that Christians borrowed, let's say, from Greek mythology. And as a matter of fact, if you go to Greek mythology, you will find evidence of what seems to be people dying and then coming back to life. Matter of fact, in the Hellenistic period prior to Christ, you had several mystery cults. You had uh, the cult of Isis. You had the cult of Kibale and Mithra. All of them having some tales of some deity person that was in some way dead and then in some way brought to life again. For example, we're told that Osiris, one of the children of the goddess Isis, was given life after having been killed by his brother Set, and that having been killed and dismembered, his body was spread throughout the Nile, and then Isis, the mother goddess, comes to rescue Osiris from the Nile and putting him back together again and giving him life. Well, skeptics, atheists, know-it-alls, freethinkers, They like to point to examples of that as some sort of comparison or parallel to what happens in the pages of Scripture. But of course, that has absolutely nothing to do with what the Scripture talks about as far as the bodily resurrection of the pre-incarnate Christ who came into this world, who took on humanity, put on physical flesh, died on the cross, and then three days later rose again according to the meticulous prophecies of the Bible. has nothing to do with it. So what makes the resurrection of Jesus to differ is who Jesus is is. That's why the resurrection is not just a miracle. That's why the resurrection is not just a phenomenological thing that happened in history. It was a paranormal activity that took place. It was a, uh, the power of God on display. It is that, but it is more than that. And first, I want to consider with you, therefore, that who was raised from the dead was none other than the Son of God. Doing evangelism, again, gives us an opportunity to correct the misunderstandings of people. That Jesus' resurrection is not what many people think. That Jesus was a victim on the cross and that out of pity, God raised him and rescued him from the dead. As the Son of God, he already had volunteered his life to lay down his life for God's people in order to raise them from the grave. Matter of fact, he made a covenant with God. You can find this in John chapter 17, where the Father and the Son are speaking about this divine conspiracy that goes all the way back into the annals of eternity, that they had agreed to work on something, namely redemption, and that the Father would have his role, the Son would have his role, and of course, the Spirit would have his role. But it is the Son of God that was raised. The reason this is important, of course, is because it deals with his deity. You know, there was a time, maybe 50 years ago, where you walked up to the average person in America and you talked to them about Jesus Christ, you talked to them about the resurrection, and they knew exactly what you were talking about. No more. Now, because of the cultural integrationism that is going on in America, because of immigration, because of multiculturalism, because of the influence of other religions, we have to deconstruct and then reconstruct people's worldviews. We have to tell them that when we say Jesus, we do not refer to an enlightened man. Then when we speak of Jesus, we're speaking of more than what the Muslims are speaking about, that he is a prophet, but he is more than that. Like the Jehovah Witnesses claim, he's just an angel. We have to correct those kinds of misconceptions. 
in the Bible, before Jesus came to earth, who was he? What was he? Meaning, what form did he have? Well, we know that humanity was something that he took on. The Bible says that prior to the incarnation, Jesus was the wisdom of God. Jesus was the divine word of God known as the Logos. This is what Scripture says. In John chapter 1, of course, we know that this word, this logos, this divine wisdom was in some sort of face-to-face relationship with the Father. So Jesus Himself tells us that He was the Word of God. That He comes into the Word, into the world to reveal the Word of God to us. When He returns, one of His names is the Word of God. But now... According to John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word has become flesh. He is a person. And as a person, He is a man. And as a man, He is the Son of God. So, He is not just the Son of God in the sense of stressing His deity, but He is also the Son of David, which stresses His humanity. This, too, is absolutely essential. He's not just the divine son. He didn't come here uh, in his divine form, meaning he did not radiate his divine glory. In fact, he laid that aside in order to take upon humanity. But why did he do it? He did it, my friends, in fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And as we're going to see, he did it for the purpose of a great redemptive scheme. This is absolutely essential. This means that the divine Son of God, the pre-existent one, needed to come in flesh in order to die and then to rise again. This is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, he says that Jesus is a descendant of David according to the flesh. Both Mary and Joseph were descendants of David. It says that this is the one who was declared the Son of... It was declared... The Son of God with power, with the power of the resurrection from the dead. Now, this is remarkable because if you see that passage there in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, verse 4, it doesn't say Jesus was the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the death. That's not what it says. It says from the dead. Actually, the word is a plural, which means dead ones. Isn't that amazing? The picture that Paul is wanting you to see is that Jesus was the first fruit that rose up from the dead ones, from the dead humanity that was there. Jesus, the first fruits of the resurrection, as Paul calls him in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 23. He didn't raise just from death, my friends. He rose up from among the dead ones. That means everybody else is dead except for Jesus. Jesus was raised back to life. All of the religious leaders are dead. All of the religious leaders are dead and are yet in their grave. Um, I have my personal trainer here, Dustin, one of our uh, one of our uh, uh, songs that we like to play in the gym is a sh- song by uh, Shailen. It's entitled, Jesus is Alive. It means Muhammad is dead, but Jesus is alive. Confucius is dead, but Jesus is alive. Ke- the Kennedys are dead, but Jesus is alive. All of the emperor Caesar is dead, but Jesus is alive. This is what separates Jesus from the whole of humanity, that he has within himself resurrection life. Jesus said, I have the power to lay my life down, and I have the power, the authority, to raise it up again. But why did this happen? The resurrection ties us to the person of David himself. If you look at the Psalms, many of the Psalms speak of David in light of resurrection. For example, Psalm 16 verse 10 says that God had made a promise to David that he would not allow his Holy One to undergo decay. In Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3, the apostles looked to this principal text to show that God had raised his Son, that he did not allow his Son to undergo decay. Now I want you to do me a favor and turn with me to Luke chapter 1. 
Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 32. Because I want you to see that this is all part of a great promise of God. The resurrection has to be put in its context. The resurrection is not a random event. We could say, well, the resurrection is a miraculous event. It is a great event. It is a powerful event. It is a tradition that we celebrate. But really, it is more than that, my dear friends. It is part of God's eternal plan. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 32, speaking of the Messiah, it says, He will be great and, and will be called the Son of the Most High. There is the Son of God. And the Lord God will give him, watch this, the throne of his father, David. Now, how is that going to happen? Through the resurrection of Jesus from among the dead. This is why God had promised to perpetuate the throne of David. This is why God gave this amazing promise to a shepherd boy out in the field. It wasn't because he was so great. It wasn't because he just wanted to do something good for one of his children. It wasn't because of anything good in David himself. It was because of what David represented, that he would one day raise up the shepherd of the sheep from among us. You see the uh, prophecy of this in Psalm 89. For those of you that want to dive deeper into this, I encourage you to do an in-depth study of Psalm 89, to see the covenant between the Father and the Son, the promises that the Father made to the Son through David, so that David becomes code for Christ. He says in verse 3, I have made a covenant with my chosen I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. That promise that God made to the person David was fulfilled in his seed, that is Jesus Christ, the son of David, that he would have a perpetual throne. The person of the resurrection, in other words, is the divine Davidic son of God who was promised the throne of his father David, a throne which he ascended to through the resurrection from the dead. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts, please, chapter 2. Just that I see that, I want you to see that the resurrection for the disciples changed everything. Beginning in verse 30. You remember I quoted this a moment ago. It says there in uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 30, well, let's begin in verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. As great as David was, Peter is saying, his tomb is right there and his bones are still in there. <laughs> so these promises could not be speaking about David himself, at least not in terms of its fulfillment. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one on his seat, one of his descendants on his throne. Look at verse thirty-one. He looked ahead, and he spoke. He spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. You see what's going on there? The apostle Peter is saying, David looked ahead. He looked beyond himself, beyond his dynasty, beyond his kingdom. Beyond his own immediate descendants, beyond Solomon, beyond all of them, to a future descendant who would fill the throne forever. As the divine Son of God, Jesus comes to us from the realm of endless days. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the one who was born in Bethlehem, in a sense, comes to us from a place of eternity. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 9 verse 6 tells us that he is the father of eternity. And he is one with the eternal father himself. 
Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 uses that phrase, Father of eternity. What does that mean other than that Jesus Christ, and it says, has total, total authority over eternity? He birthed eternity. It's amazing language to tell us of the pre existence and the eternality of the Son of God. As the son of David, he is also the one that the prophets inquired about, that they wrote about, that they prophesied about through the Spirit of Christ himself. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10-13, to 13, the person of the resurrection is none other, my dear friends, than our mediator. The person of the resurrection is the messianic mediator that Isaiah wrote about in Isaiah 42, verse 1, that one would go between us and God. As Hebrews, that we've been studying so much in Hebrews 8, verse 6, he is the mediator of a better covenant built on better promises. Through the resurrection, Jesus is declared to be the Son of God in power. And what does that mean? Other than the fact that the resurrection means for Jesus that he ascends into that place of absolute exaltation and absolute glory. This is what Muslims need to hear. They don't need to hear about a pretty boy Jesus. They don't need to hear about a Jesus walking around on rose petals. They don't need to see a Jesus with blue eyes and blonde hair walking down the beach holding your hand. They need to hear that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is the reigning, ruling, exalted, glorious King of heaven. That Jesus is not weak. He is not anemic. That he doesn't lack power and sovereignty and dominion and authority, but that it all belongs to him. Next, because we can spend all day long on the person of the resurrection. And a lot of ink has been spilt over the years on the person and work of Jesus Christ. In our day and age, a lot of... uh, A lot of memory and a lot of RAM is being used up to to teach and expound on the person and work of Christ. But let's move on to the fact of the resurrection. Is the resurrection a historical fact? Or, as the liberals say, it doesn't matter if it actually happened as long as you believe in it. What's important is your faith in it. That's how existentialism works. It takes everything from you by promising everything to you. Oh, you get all the benefits of it as long as you believe it. Who cares if it actually happened? Well, folks, try that with a financial transaction. Here is an imaginary check, and I want you to cash it. Would you get excited about that? Huh? Oh, maybe some in this world would because they live in an imaginary world. But if I gave you an imaginary check and I said, here you go, go to the bank, cash it, it's all yours. It means absolutely nothing. If Jesus didn't historically rise from the dead, then why do you expect that you will historically rise from the dead one day? Jesus was historically killed, buried, and risen again. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the place where the resurrection comes into its greatest light and where the Apostle Paul focuses his, the, 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 the most amount of energy and effort and Scripture and writing to talk about the implications of the resurrection. And I want to pose this question for you because when I say, is the resurrection a fact? You may expect me, as many pastors today in America and around the world are doing, to pull out a list of evidential reasons why you ought to embrace the resurrection. I I don't need to turn to Gary Habermas to prove to you who moved the stone. I will tell you who moved the stone on the authority of the Word of God. Because the Word of God has more authority than Josephus. The Word of God has more authority than Tacitus. The Word of God has more authority than any Roman historian or any work of antiquity or any author or any evidentialist in the world. The Word of God is our authority for knowing if Jesus rose from the dead. And people have it the complete opposite. 
they think, well, that's the Bible, though. See, we need a secular source to confirm what the Bible says. No, 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 no. Actually, you have the complete opposite. (laughs) The Bible says, do not put God to the test. Don't be judge over God. Man doesn't have the ability to do this. I think if the Apostle Paul was here and people were asking him for reasons to believe in the resurrection, he would tell them, look, the reason why is because without the resurrection, you don't know anything at all. Sorry to get all presuppositional on you, but that's the way it works. Human reason, the scientific method, the evidential method cannot be the basis of our knowledge of the fact of the resurrection. I'm sorry, my friends. You can stand here all day and present all the evidence that you want, but if it doesn't come from divine revelation at the end of the day, all that you have is an argument that goes like this. There is a really, 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 really good chance that Jesus rose from the dead. And that is not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible says, full assurance of faith, no doubting, no wavering. Jesus said, do you want to know if my words are the words of God? Do the will of God and you will know. The proof is in the pudding. When a person comes from faith to light, uh, we talked about in Sunday school, when a person is truly regenerate, when you have an encounter with the living God, you do not need to delineate into a thousand rational reasons why you should believe in the resurrection. You know it just like you know honey is sweet. You put honey on a person's tongue if they don't tell you it's sweet, you can't help them. Send them to school, reason with them, talk to them about science, tell them how taste buds work. I'm sorry if I put the honey on your tongue and it ain't sweet. There's nothing I can do for you. But it works. When the Spirit of God comes into your life, He testifies with your spirit that these things are true. And not a million other explanations or arguments or skeptical reasonings can, uh, can undo that. Yes, there is an absolute subjectivism to Christianity. Absolutely. The internal subjective experience of a Christian is verified by the external revelation of God. That's how it works. If we fly to human reason, if we go to Aristotle, if we go to Thomas Aquinas, if we go to natural revelation, if we go to the Greek philosophers, if we go to the scientists of today, if we go to modern philosophy or modern psychology to give us the basis of our faith in Christ's resurrection, then we become what we reason from. And that is not what God tells us to do. You know that because the Bible says God has set the wisdom of the world aside. Why? Because the world with all of its wisdom, with all of its conversations, with all of its theories, with all of its ideas, never came to know God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Or excuse me, verse 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 goes like this. When people ask you how you know the fact of the resurrection, we should argue something like this. Now, if Christ is preached, this is 1 Corinthians 15, 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith, also vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testify, watch this folks, against God that he raised Christ, who he did not raise, if the argument is true. If in fact he, did not ra- he was not raised, or if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. And you are still in your sin. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, they have perished. 
If we hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying the whole Christian faith hangs on this article of the resurrection. Paul is the first reformer. He is the one that says, on this article of the faith, in this article of the resurrection, rather, our whole faith stands or falls. And that, my friends, I think what Paul is saying is, is an abject impossibility. It is impossibility that Christ is not raised. So, we, so what is Paul doing here? He is arguing from the entire Christian worldview. And he's saying, it is not possible that the entire Christian worldview, our preaching, God's witness, our faith, the whole thing is not true. I love it because it gives God the sovereignty. It gives God the preeminence. It makes God prior, the priority number one. It gives God's word preeminence above all other things. And it brings us under the submission of his lordship. My friends, what is the resurrection? The the resurrection of Jesus is a climactic event. It is a climactic fact. So let's move now from the fact of the resurrection to the reality of the resurrection. In other words, on Sundays, on, on every year in Easter when we get together and we say, He is risen! And you say, He is risen indeed! What are we saying? Have we thought deeply enough about what it is that we're professing at that point? Oh, I know that we do. I know that on a very simple level, we know what we're saying. Jesus Christ, what are you talking about? Jesus is risen from the grave. This is our hope. And I would say amen. Now let me try to fill up why it is our hope, why it is so glorious, and why it should be that gladdening day that it is. There are a couple of things here. There are a couple of dimensions of the reality of the resurrection that we have to explore. Number one, the redemptive historical impact of the resurrection. Remember when I said the resurrection is a climactic event? It is a climactic fact. What is a climax? A climax is a buildup to something. It is the apex of something. It is the crescendo of something. And that is exactly what it is. The resurrection is more than a miracle. It is more than a brute fact of history. It is more than just God showing off his power. It is all of those things, but it is more than that. It is actually the climax of a great historical development that God has been developing even to this very day, which is the plan of redemption, the story of redemption. Now let me help you to reflect on this. It may help if we think about Scripture's historical redemptive events that have transpired over history. Because when I say it is the climax, what I am saying is it is the greatest thing in a succession of things, right? It is the ultimate, the penultimate event in redemptive history. And so what am I saying The resurrection of Jesus Christ is greater than the creation of the world. It is greater than God's uh, act of creating the world ex nihilo, out of nothing. It is greater, I say, than God coming in judgment at the flood of Noah, rescuing eight souls and destroying the rest of mankind. A great event in and of itself, a breathtaking event. The confusion that happened at the Tower of Babel when the nations were scattered because they were united against God and against His Christ. And He scattered and He confused the nations. And what do you have today? Do you need, what more proof do you need of that today than just to look at what the UN does year in and year out? You think they have unity? You think they have understanding? They sit around big round tables with translators in their ears translating what their enemies are saying and then trying to conspire of how to respond. It's a, it's a world of confusion. The world is in absolute, utter disarray as a result of God scattering the peoples, confounding their languages. The election of his first patriarch 
coming to him and coming with him is the creation of a new nation, namely Israel. I'm saying that the resurrection is greater than the exodus under Moses where God rescued his people through many terrible plagues and spectacular signs and wonders and the splitting of the Red Sea. I'm saying that the resurrection is greater than Moses standing on the mountain and saying, behold your God and the ocean opening up. I think if we were there, uh, it would take our breath away. The hearts of men would fail. We would be overcome, overwhelmed, filled with fear, filled with wonder. And what I'm saying is the resurrection is greater than that event. It's greater than the giving of the law. The giving of the law, I will remind you, was accompanied by great miracles. Did you know that? Lightning, thunder, flashes, fire, angels, all in accompaniment to the giving of the law in a, a great redemptive event in and of itself. The erection of a tabernacle where God would come and commune with his covenant people. The creation of a kingdom, a dynasty under David. The redemption of a remnant in captivity from Babylon and the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Israel's history is tethered together by a series of redemptive events, all of them culminating in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what the resurrection is. The resurrection is the last and greatest thing in a line of redemptive events. But let's make it personal today because this is what I want to end on. I want to drive it home to our hearts because not only is there a redemptive historical impact, but there is also a personal salvific impact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing draws out this principle than the new creation and what happened at the resurrection. The resurrection means that God accomplished our redemption. So many of our redemptive things that we've been studying even in Sunday school, the order of salvation, those things are accomplished through the resurrection. Okay, be ready to speed through the scriptures with me. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. So I want you to see how closely knit together the resurrection is to your redemption and mine. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, that's what we've been studying, to a living hope, watch this now, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Isn't that glorious? The resurrection of Jesus means God can regenerate you now. That's what it means. Because he lives, we live. How about Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5? Some of these some of these familiar passages that you might have forgotten are actually resurrection passages. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. Watch this. God made us alive. That's the, that, is the, uh, that is the agent being referred to there. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him. You see that? Just as God raised up Christ, we were raised with Him. That means that in the resurrection is represented all of this. It means we are represented in the resurrection of Christ. When Christ rose, we are united to Him. We are bound with Him. We are glued with Him. When He came up out of the grave, He took us with Him. That's what it means. Not just, his, not just regeneration, but also our justification. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. This is how foundational the resurrection is. Your whole salvation is based on the resurrection. Listen to what Paul says. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions, that's Jesus going to the cross, and was raised, watch this, because of our justification. That's an interesting way of saying it, right? Are you scratching your head? Because, because? Where there are two causal clauses 
in that, in that verse. He was delivered because our sin. Okay, that makes sense. Jesus had to die because of our sins. And then it says, and then he was raised because of our justification. What does it mean? It means that this is the chosen method that God used to make us right with him. It means possibly that in the, in the vindication of the Son of God, it means that our justification was secured. It means that by Jesus being raised from the dead, it means that you and I can be justified in the sight of God. We can be put right with God. God accepts the payment that the Son made. And because of that, His justice is fully satisfied. But more than that, we are fully justified because of the resurrection. But more than that, it means that in the resurrection, our lives, our salvation, our freedom from death, our victory over death, all of it is represented at the, at the resurrection. The Spirit is also the, uh, excuse me, the Spirit, excuse me, the resurrection is also the basis of our sanctification. So we go from regeneration to justification and now to sanctification. Our sanctification is rooted in the resurrection. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6, please. Romans chapter 6. The resurrection being the basis of our right standing with God in our justification is consequently the basis of our sin-destroying empowerment through sanctification. Through the same Spirit that raised Jesus. Look at uh, Romans 6, verse 5. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. By raising us up, Jesus speaks about the fact that he gives us newness of life. Uh, let's make it more clear. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. There the apostle Paul gives us a parallel passage. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Why? Why does this result in life for us? Why does it result in sanctification for us? It is because the, spirit, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead has transformative power. Oh, I tell you what. We're living in an evangelical age that is fitting right in with what Paul warned Peter about. Be careful, because the day is coming where people will have a semblance of godliness. They will have all of these things that look evangelical and sound evangelical, but they deny the power thereof. We're seeing this right now with homosexuality and the gay Christian movement that says God loves you just as you are and he accepts you for who you are. That's the wrong gospel. The gospel of Jesus is God, yes, he loves you, but no, he does not leave you as you are. And I know that it sounds like I'm doing this whole gay bashing thing, but my friends, I don't know if you have been paying attention, but the whole gay activist movement is getting extremely militant. Now, one of the founders of the leading advo uh, uh, advocacy groups for homosexuality is coming out with a full frontal assault on the church and saying the church must change its position. It's not enough anymore to talk about the bakery. See, they're not content with that, folks. It's not enough to sue the Christian business owner that refuses to make cakes for gay weddings. Now the script is, the church itself must change its message. Now they are attacking the gospel directly. 
And this is why I am adamant that we get the gospel right, that the gospel is about transformation. The gospel is about renewal, not leaving you the same. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were cleansed. You were sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. You were made clean. You were made a new person. And it should not surprise us because what is the resurrection other than the inauguration of a new creation? Oh, I've got too many verses here and I'll preach for another hour if I'm not careful, but I don't care. I'm not here on this resurrection Sunday to get traditional. I am here because the living God has changed my heart through the resurrection of the dead. I'm not here to play games. I am appalled at the fact that church after church after church on the way to church today are having Easter egg hunts. What? The resurrection is not about a rabbit, folks. It's about the Son of God. And people are losing sight of that. Oh, we are in so much trouble. While militant Islam is coming, while militant depravity and sexual perversion is coming like a deluge, like a tsunami. What is the Christian church doing? We're going Easter egg hunting. God help us. God help us to get a little glimpse of what happened to the book of Acts church when they found out about the resurrection. Boldness! Speak the truth in the power of the Spirit of God. It took a bunch of cowering disciples from an upper room and it, it, it thrust them out into the streets proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's transformative, folks. And the reason why is because the resurrection of Jesus Christ means the inauguration of a new creation. And you, my dear friend, if you are in Christ Jesus, are the first fruits of that new creation. You know the verses. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's not just sentimental language. That's actually very technical apostolic rhetoric that tells us that the dawning of the ages has come upon us. That means the world that is coming in Christ. As Peter said, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. That's what we're looking for. You know what the resurrection means? The resurrection means that we have a little glimpse of that even now. We're, we're beginning to taste. It's a foretaste. Oh, I, it's just a glimpse. It's just a glimmer. But what's going on spiritually, invisibly, in the hidden man, in the hidden person of your soul is that God has begun to intrude into this world to begin to, 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 to send out proof that he is going to recreate this whole place one day. Amazing, isn't it? He's going to recreate this whole world, new heavens, new earth. The whole world, according to Matthew, will undergo what he calls a regeneration. And you and I are the first fruits of that. Why? Because with the resurrection came the new creation. And you and I are new creatures in Christ Jesus. And we are to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. And according to Colossians chapter 3, verses uh, 3 and 5, and verse 10, we are supposed to be renewed in our inner self. The old man is dead. The new man is to be alive. We are to put off the old man, put on the new man. We are to be looking totally different. My friends, I fear. I fear for anyone who professes the name of Christ but has never undergone any transformation in their life. I'm talking about transformation. I'm talking about people knew you and they know you now and you are not who you used to be. Something is different. And I know that regeneration and conversion is a mystery. And sometimes, as A.W. Pink says, when a person becomes regenerate, it could be as subtle as the wind when it blows and you can barely see the leaves blowing. 
You may not detect it. Maybe you didn't have one of these radical overnight, you know, conversions. Like Paul, you didn't get kicked off a horse, but, you know, you weren't blinded by, God. you know, this miraculous things accompanied your conversion. But I tell you what, the wind blows nevertheless. But some people, the wind of regeneration is like a hurricane, or in our context, like a tornado, right? It flattens things. It just, it just flattens things in your life. I tell you what, I could testify to this. And I'm not afraid to testify, to tell you that when I got saved, it flattened everything around me. I probably was the worst young, regenerate Christian. You want to talk about cage stage. My gospel message was very simple. You're going to die and go to hell. Repent right now. <laughs> sorry to offend you. I'm sorry to get, get to cut to the chase. Just ask my sister. She'll tell you exactly how I witnessed to her. My coworkers, I got on the nerves. Because everything changes when you know the risen Christ. Because the tomb becomes a symbol of hope, not a symbol of death. What is the grave for us? It is the portal to paradise. Think of the thief of the cross. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Death and the sting of death has been removed. The power of the grave defeated. And now the grave opens for us new untold vistas of unspeakable pleasure and bliss in the kingdom of God. Oh, Father. Oh, Father, we pray. The resurrection would never become not only tradition, but just religious sentimentalism. That it just wouldn't become average, normal, old, boring. It is our hope. As the Apostle Paul said, without it, we are above all men in the world to be pitied. Because we're banking our entire future. Our entire life, our entire existence, our entire way of life. We are banking our entire faith on this one Greatest of all redemptive events, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We're so grateful, oh God, that you rose up Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, that you, you rose him up, that you seated him at your right hand, and that he's a forerunner for us, that he's our trailblazer, he's our leader, our captain the author of our salvation who passed through the heavens so that one day we will join him there. Bless you, Lord. Bless your name. You are greatly to be praised. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.